A very good evening to you all. I can't see you, but nice to be with you. Obviously, there are varieties of the normative and the dissident, as well, in the, as, well as in the number of centres and peripheries. What in one relationship imagines itself to be peripheral may be central in another, and vice versa. We may say that the normative centre has status, power, voice, influence and confidence. The dissident periphery is often denied such qualities or struggles to acquire them. In the Catholic Church, the normative centre is variously the Pope, the Vatican dicasteries, the diocesan bishop and curia, but powerful religious institutions, some movimenti, and various well-endowed institutes also claim a normativity. The dissident peripheries are found among the poor and voiceless. Firstly, the socio-economically excluded, but also various groupings, notably women or youth, but also groups experiencing degrees of exclusion and voicelessness, such as the ethnically other or LGBT+. The centre guards a long tradition of normative, normatively proclaiming and denouncing and silencing with the expectation of obedience in the process producing series of narratives from which various minorities claim exclusion, if not oppression. Having found a theologically interpretative voice, one that authenticates their possession of census fide through baptism, Excluded perspectives are producing discourses integral to the learning process, outside of which there can be no adequate Ecclesia Docens, teaching church. If different magisteria are to be capable of teaching, each must first be capable of learning. How can normative centre and dissident periphery so communicate that they do not just declaim, but learn from each other with mutual integrity. The first condition is an act of humility on the part of the normative centre, allowing reflection on the lamentable scandal of clerical sex abuse to disclose the systematically distorted communication that sought to legitimate its power superstructure. Pathetically centred on avoiding scandal injurious to the institution, that deplorably failed to see innocent victims as the body of Christ. It was systemic and institutionalized, primarily because of internalization of a common ideology of institutional supremacism, sustained by a subculture of secrecy and denial, covering up systemic dysfunctionalities. These combined to make interpretation, if not the letter of canon law, an instrument of coercion. That shaped how a clericalist subculture articulated a warped version of ethics, soteriology and church order. This was legitimated in an institutionalist ecclesiology, valuing structures over people, legitimating a nexus of disproportionate emphases on an exclusively male presbyterate, an outworn seminary system with ordinance cut off from the people of God, a conformist ideology of priesthood, producing men denied agency in their personal lives, but expected to be authoritative public leaders. And that base a suspicious attitude towards adult sexual intimacy, which in a patriarchal superstructure translated into deep seated suspicion of the female. How different our recent history might have been had mothers of children been in positions of authority and governance in the church. This humility is different to humili humiliation, which derives from a loss of face that was but a mask. Humility is based on truth, the realization that much of the time-worn centrist discourse was as much one of legitimating a power apparatus as of proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ. Recognizing the inadequacy of that distorted communication masquerading as church teaching. With this, 
a space of unknowing opens up, where learning from the silenced other by a contrite center becomes possible, even desirable. Coherent theological voices arising from poverty or victimhood merit privileged hermeneutical status. That privilege consists in their therapeutic function in the context of dialogue with other theological perspectives in creating conditions for the latter to develop self-awareness in relation to unexamined socio-political rootedness and relatedness to structures of exclusion in order to correct these. Dialogue between ecclesial center and dissident periphery must acknowledge the power differential between them. The peripheral voice is systematically disempowered. Change normally involves dissatisfaction and requires struggle. Serenity and balance often the perquisites of the powerful. The center must become intentionally canotic, purposefully and self-critically embodying how a teaching church must first be a learning church. Yet, voices from the peripheries are not of a kind. As clericalism, all too real as it is, becomes a convenient though necessary whipping boy for much critique and dissent, it is important to note that the laity are no uniform group. In many places, a gap is opening up between a laity, confident, articulate, who join committees, read reports, quickly acquire a new vocabulary and make their voice heard, and a laity who are and do none of these things with any comfort or sense of inclusion, but who would insist that they fully participate in the life of the church. It seems at times that the first group are unwittingly perhaps doing to the second what they insist the clergy are doing to them. Here, learning with mutual integrity entails moving beyond committee models that endorse and intensify both the efficiency and the marginalization aspects of the bureaucratic state. Move from there to employing inductive methodologies which value everybody's perspective and experience. Base ecclesial communities in Brazil, for example, employ a see, judge, act methodology. That such methodology has not won wide employment in many distant groups here in the West may say something about the latter's socio-political rootedness and perspective. That may, to a degree unsuspected by its protagonists, function as an endorsement of dominant decision-making mechanisms in society, as well as its meritocratic structure of inclusion-exclusion. Both the center and the articulate critical dissident voice at the periphery need to allow their narratives to be interrogated by the perspective of the oppressed. There is a dissidence of the conservative right as well as of the liberal left, more wealthy, organized, networked, and vociferous. In different ways, its origins lie in links between hard right politics and the Lefebvreistism following the rejection of Vatican II, made complete when Marcel Lefebvre was excommunicated in 1988. It looks to the past with nostalgia rather than anamnesis. Following the lifting by Pope Benedict of the excommunications of the priests Lefebvre had consecrated as bishops, and even before, sustained fraternal ecumenical outreach to the Lefebvreists produced little fruit in terms of acceptance of the authority of an ecumenical council. Lifting of excommunications seemingly emboldened attempts to have the Tridentine liturgy re-established as an alternative normative liturgy. Pope Francis revoked some permissions his predecessor had granted for celebrating the Tridentine rite of the mass. He made it clear that an ideological movement had abused concessions that had been granted, with some using the celebration of the old rite to mount opposition to the council in its entirety. 
insisting that there was only one normative liturgy for the universal church, Francis restricted its use to a minority of genuine pastoral needs, following that up with a prohibition on priestly ordinations and confirmations according to that right. While many are drawn to the Tridentine Mass for, for ideological reasons, it may also prove a haven for some whose disposition is geared towards tighter authority structures, interiority, and silent worship. Can the recurring liturgical wars offer an invitation to receptivity, to create more powerful and inclusive liturgical and social environments? Reciprocally, reciprocally can those keenly valuing tradition be helped to see the receiving of an ecumenical council as the only way to preserve the dynamic process of reception at the heart of tradition? And likewise, the repudiation of a council as repudiation of that very tradition. One key element in a process of mutual learning with integrity is communication shaped by the intention to love the other, whatever their theological orientation, as Christ loves us. From one perspective, this is important to surpass a paternalistic discourse sometimes disguising an unreconstructed desire to control. From the other, it aims at a discourse that surpasses a demand for inclusion, <coughs> disguising a mimetic desire for power. Parsing such tendencies is complex. Powerlessness is something to be overcome. The kind of power sought, however, may be problematic. Where does it lie on the spectrum that extends from the power exercised by advocates of structures that marginalize and the power exercised in loving, hoping, and enduring all things in the service of communion? The resultant dynamic involves contesting, convincing, replacing. But if in a manner mimicking party politics, it remains partial, oppositional, and ideological, it will be either ineffective while increasingly divisive, so apparent in the USA, but elsewhere too, or if apparently effective, then its win-lose orientation will merely replace one form of domination exclusion with another. Whatever our orientation or the learning mustered to endorse it, our views are never more than a provisional stage in the knowledge born of love seeking understanding, where the love which births that knowledge, something far more than the partiality of those who support our aims, is always a self-critical enterprise in internalizing, expressing, and receiving the love with which Christ loved us. Incomplete as that will always be, without it, the discourse from whichever perspective will remain ideological. Full of a knowledge born of the will to power, capable of winning temporary domination, but incapable of facilitating conversion and joyful acceptance of the deeper emancipative, emancipative truth. Sometimes a genuine breakthrough in the dynamic of mutual learning follows a quantum leap in the genre of the discourse. For centuries, the center declaimed as if a locus of law enforcement, anathemizing those assumed to be in disagreement. It employed a genre derived from legislative judicial discourse in the Roman Empire as a constitutive element even of ecumenical councils down to Vatican I. Vatican II, where the term anathema never appears, expresses itself in a new genre, in panegyric or epidactic form, pointing, painting, and enchanting idealized portrait to elicit admiration and appropriation. To learn with mutual integrity, both normative and dissident might portray their ecclesial visions in a manner that elicits admiration and appropriation rather than conformism and exclusion. 
mutual learning can occur if the teaching from both sides is enchanting. That requires acknowledging the experience of disenchantment with the dominant mode of the recent past. Disenchantment here refers to Ricoeur's call for a disenchantment with the quote, narcissistic self-projection composed and imposed by the projected self. Something found in all but the most agapeistic narratives. It is found in the, in the ecclesiolatry of the recent past whose spurious construction of societas perfecta blinded church leaders to the crucifixion of the body of Christ in collusion with abuse. An ecclesiolatry that has now occasioned ecclesiodicy. It is found in the self-projection of those who appeal to a supposed piety in the Latin mass to camouflage exploitation of religious faith for far-right political purposes. It is found in movements that would refashion the church according to the multi-choice preferences and privileges of the successful first world bourgeois subject. While the hermeneutical endeavor, always at base, founded on a deep listening to the divine other, as well as to the oppressed other, will always include deconstruction and disenchantment, it can do more. It can empower a restructuration. However much it must disenchant, it must just as much enchant. To do that, it develops empathy for the positive in the other's narrative, so that its critique can also be heard and received as an endorsement, development and enrichment of something the interlocutor holds dear. The ecclesiology of the normative centre was indeed a destructive distortion, but a distortion of something good, a deep sense of the divine origin and inner dynamic of the church and a great love for that church. For some, devotion to the Latin mass is less right-wing politics than a desire to acknowledge the holiness of God. For many anxious to restructure the church as a participant democracy, what is at stake are deeper dimensions of contextualizing the incarnation and Christ's communion with all of us. The mutual learning involved, intentionally expressive of the love with which Christ loves the other as much as one's supporters, is rooted in God. That requires an apophatic pause, a realization that compared with lived experience of contemplative ascent towards union with the unknowable God, our concepts, inasmuch as they tend to imprison the mind within finite limits, become obstacles. If apophatism does not dissolve dogma, but teaches us to see a negative meaning in it, still more does it disclose the limitation of our thinking. Yet many great mystics, however aware of the inability of human speech to contain the divine, nonetheless understand the dogmas of the church as referring to God in a realistic way. To reaffirm the cataphatic, so that while acknowledging its limitations, one may confess that it embodies and conveys revealed truth, has important consequences, especially in a climate so disenchanted with the pretension of immutable doctrinal formulation that might wish that it might wish to jettison the very possibility of normative doctrine in the name of the unknowability of the things of God. Does Saint Augustine's, if you understand it is not God, Cienum comprehendis non esteus. Does that mean that we do not understand God at all? Or does it imply some understanding of God by comparison with which this or that understanding is not God? The context of this famous statement is a sermon against Arian misunderstanding of God, proposing a better understanding, an argumentation presupposing that God can be somehow 
understood. For Augustine, the notion of verbum suggests God has revealed God's self as intelligible word, and that this word, and thus God, can be understood, at least to a degree. The incomprehensibility he implies is not absolute, but qualified. It arises because our hearts are impure. The confessions do not portray God as unattainable. God can, to some extent, aliquantum, be touched by the mind, an experience of beatitude. Augustine uses attingere, to attain, to describe this touching by the mind, literally to touch at, ad tingere, evoking, approaching, reaching for, bordering on. He calls it a cognition, but not a comprehension. It seems linked with the contemplative touching described in Confessions Book 9, writing of the ecstatic experience shared with his mother, St. Monica, at Ostia. To comprehend, evokes Oops. more than a mere seeing or even a cognition or an intelligence, a vision such that nothing of God would escape the mind. When Augustine denies that we can understand God, he does not mean that God totally escapes our knowledge, our intelligence, or even our grasp. He means that we have no comprehension, no full grasp of God that would allow understanding of the whole reality of God. Falling in love with God involves loving God in all things and loving all things in God. It sees the otherness of God mediated and disclosed in a privileged way through the otherness of the oppressed. Authentic ecclesial reflection from whatever perspective likewise holds the contemplative path and the preferential option for the poor in dynamic equilibrium. Efforts to dissolve the inescapable tension in seeking to do this, as for example in certain base communities in Brazil, though elsewhere too, resulted in either an option for left-wing politics increasingly weak on spiritual sustenance with a loss of ecclesial identity, or an immersion in movements of Pentecostal tendency weak on socio-political engagement in an alienated ecclesial identity. Proverbially, it takes a century to receive a council. Reception of Vatican II continues. By no means unreservedly accomplished with the Catechism, the new Code of Canon Law, or John Paul II's body of teaching. The reception Pope Francis proposes is shaped by the Latin American post-conciliar church's call for a return to the impulses of the early church. If his predecessor's invitation, if his predecessors saw this as one of theological identity, Francis sees it as a more primordial pastoral invitation to place the poor and marginalized at the center of the church's mission. With rootedness in the space defined by both contemplative descent to the mystery, as well as the preferential option for the poor, Theology can discover a new voice, doubly important because of the erudition of <clears throat> modern theology. Theology within the public academy, in dialogue with the learning of that academy, produces an endlessly sophisticated grasp of the sociology, psychology, anthropology, literary genre, and history of doctrine. Unquestionably a notable achievement, is shadow, its shadow side is an almost creeping atmosphere of provisionality, detachment, relativism, skepticism, because there are always more questions to be asked, more distinctions to be made, more qualifications to be added to any even provisional grasp of an always developing doctrine. Yet even here, there is something of fundamental importance an implicit acknowledgement of the unknowable mystery that there is no God but God, because if you have understood, 
then it is not God. Nonetheless, this endless erudition, leading always to further necessary questions, of itself often does not adequately support the task of making life-changing choices to build a contemplative koinonia that privileges the poor and to theologize from there. A complementary, complementary, not alternative or substitute, a complementary discourse is needed. Learned enough to display theological coherence, bold enough to propose coherent action. Used 31 times in the New Testament, prachesia denotes freedom and fearless boldness in speaking without concealment or ambiguity. An ethical quality of free speech. Aristotle sees it as the trait of the magnanimous person, the megalasuchos, the courageous rational one who prefers truth to opinion. If parousia involves boldness, of course, not all bold speech is parousia. The boldness may, desire, may derive from mere passion or unexamined prejudice. Parousia is evident in Socrates' interlocutors in the harmonic relation between Socrates' words and deeds. He is a musicus anor, whose logos and bias are in harmonic accord. Unlike the sophist, he can freely employ parousia because what he says, as well as being coherent, accords exactly with what he thinks and what he thinks and what he does with what he does, even if with dangerous consequences for himself. Truly free and courageous in life and speech, he discloses the truth in his speaking and critically confronts his interlocutor's opinions. Pope Francis, I think, is one such. Clear and free in speech, a rigorous intellectual framework undergearing his apparently off-the-cuff style. His speech is accessible, not because he is not a sophisticated thinker, but because he lives what he says so profoundly and consistently that it has become connatural to him and is recognizable as such. Parousia can liberate the normative discourse from banal formalism and the dissident discourse from merely passionate opinion, opening up a space for a shared horizon of understanding rich in potential for learning. To be Catholic is to think and act and speak according to the whole, Catholic, in a deeper, wider universality. Both the normative voice's tendency to control the pneumatological and the dissident's fascination with particular elements in the zeitgeist need to engage in this wider Catholicism instead of either a comfortable, controllable one or a comfortable, culturally approved one. Both need to be more rather than less Catholic more alive to the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and the alpha and the omega of where Catholicism is rooted, dynamized and oriented. The church contains a wholeness lost in sectarianism, including forms to which it itself has been prone. Organic linkage to, linkage to Christ and to the Holy Spirit made explicit through the tradition received from the apostles <coughs> allows it to confess a fullness of truth about humanity, which pertains to all people and not settle for any lesser partial truth. The true normative voice is the consensus fidelium the consensus of the faithful, emerging to the census fidei fidelium, something more than mere consent of the people of God to the center's teaching. The heretofore insufficiently acknowledged truth that every baptized person is gifted with census fidei means that all contribute to elaborating the census fidei fidelium, the sense of faith of the faithful. Yet 
does not mean that any individual or group of Christians can of themselves fully articulate that. Consensus fidelium is the agreement of the people of God expressing the census fidei fidelium. Before consensus, there will be argument, disagreement, dissent, as there was in Jerusalem, Antioch, Nicaea, Chalcedon, down to Vatican II, and today. The consensus of the faithful requires not the absence of oppositions, but their resolution through deeper penetration of God's loving self-communication in a manner facilitating growth in faith and love. Without disagreements, there could not be the discernment that leads to growth in the bond of unity. The sense of faith of the faithful is a kind of faith-based ecclesial public opinion, mediated by social networks, situated within the public space, passing through assessment by contradiction, utility, and truth. That generates agreement and disagreement. These arise because of what believers differently consider to be their utility in securing a desired good, personal and ecclesial life in Christ. The whole truth of Christ and the Holy Spirit touches on all things. The intrinsic universal significance of Christ demands church involvement with all aspects of human life. This makes the church intrinsically universal, but equally inherently particular. Concerned with the all, it is therefore concerned with the each. Each local church, each local issue, each particular concern. Can normative and dissident discourses avoid absoluting absolutizing what is secondary, giving more importance to the parts than to the whole, something both tend to do. The normative is tempted to present as the whole, a self-promoting limited selection of themes. One may recall an almost exclusive emphasis on sexual morals and ethics, almost to the exclusion of social justice or a soteriology so focused on individual souls that it's indifferent to the joys and hopes and anxieties of the people of its time. The dissident voice is often focused on specific issues, sometimes just one, declaiming that the very survival of the church is a matter of addressing that issue immediately. Right-wing dissidence freezes a given moment in the development of tradition demanding that the whole church return to living in a nostalgic idealization of that moment. Dismay at an increasing multiplicity of opinions on every aspect of Catholicism can overlook the previous apparently wide agreement masked how disagreement was dealt with by submission, silencing or schism. Now, Interpretive communities sit less comfortably with oversimplistic notions of orthodoxy. An assumed binding decisive orthodoxy expresses two realities. One intones expressions of what has been taught by our pious ancestors. What Vincent of Lerat classically expressed, the other suggests ideological use of religion by groups competing in the same political space something theology struggles to name. Embattled reception of Vatican II, as of previous councils, shows Catholic tradition as a living body of doctrine, seeking ever deeper understanding in contexts unforeseeable at the time of previous articulations of its truth. The normative implies the dissident. Christian praxis is already faith-seeking understanding. If ecclesial praxis is the bearer of its own theology, one may speak of different loci of theological authority. Claire Watkins distinguishes operant embodied in a given practice, espoused 
practitioner's articulation of their practice, normative expressed in established tradition and formal articulated in the academy. Ecclesial praxis embodies a theology, even while being espoused and before formal theology has reflected upon it in dialogue with the tradition. These four loci of theological wisdom operate as theology's infrastructure. Conversation between them is intrinsic to theology in process. That follows from examining practices considered integral to the ecclesial tradition. The four are intrinsically interrelated and imply the task, as here, even though we are focusing on two, of discerning their interrelatedness to discover a renewed theology and practice. Watkins identifies three important questions. The relation of the voices to each other, the asymmetry of authorities between them, and the problem of the operant voice, the latter difficult to resolve because interpretation never fully accounts for lived reality. Yet one can never hear one voice without hearing echoes of the other three. Hardly separate voices at all. They synchronize in discord or concord as four approximations to how the self-communicating God may be heard. This has implications for each, but particularly for the normative, not to be construed simply as a corrective authority, as if itself were never in need of correction. Understanding normativity as a formidable authority in relation tradition to tradition, scripture and liturgy highlights its relation of service to the other three voices. There are different kinds of authority of the poor, the mystics, the hitherto excluded, as well as of the episcopacy and theologians. All stand in a relation of service. That highlights the relation of service of all theology to the pastoral. From John the 23rd's Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, through the famous note added to the title of Gaudium et Spes, to the emphasis on pastoralidad in the Magisterium of Pope Francis, putatively normative and dissident theologies draw closer in a rediscovery of the primacy of the pastoral. The pastoral regains its standing as something far more than the mere application of doctrine, but as the context from which doctrines emerge, the condition of their possibility, the touchstone of their validity, and the prior and posterior praxis which doctrine attempts to sum up, systematize, and transmit. Doctrinal statements are hugely important, but like the goal lines and touch lines of a football pitch, they tell us when the ball is in play. They say little about the actual play, the effort, initiative, correcting, supporting, courage, purposefulness, joy and struggle that go into it. It is in the praxis of the church, rather than in its doctrines per se, that salvation occurs or does not occur, as does or does not the holiness that mediates or does not mediate it. Ecclesiology gives systematic shape to lived praxis and to conversations expressing its meaning. The normative voice striving to shape and preserve its connectedness to and development of the tradition requires the dissident voices stress on the concrete so that the pastoral will not be reduced again merely to the application of fixed doctrines with many new questions either overlooked or answered simplistically. The church, a contemplative mystical endeavor, is coextensively a community animating social transformation rooted 
in contemplation of God's unrestricted compassion. It is not primarily an ethical movement, but a mystical movement in, in uh, inspiring and sustaining a morality. Today, that mysticism takes the form of mercy, not as a substitute for justice, but incorporating and surpassing justice in its summons to be just even towards those who are not just to us. There is little hope of any discourse not rooted in contemplative mercy for one's adversaries, leading those into deeper understanding of Christian tradition. That tradition, while eliciting a reasonable rational account of itself, is not an ideology to be perfected by ever more precise formulations, even if always searching for such precisions. It is firstly fathoming our incorporation into Christ through the sanctifying gift of the Holy Spirit. Catholic conversation, incorporating consensus and dissent is always a shared journey towards liberation from prejudices that distort one's organizing the limited, limited grasp of the truth that each possesses. But likewise, an invitation to enter into the triune life of endless compassion for all beings. Without these, it descends into the recriminatory caricature of ecclesial debate, all too evident when truth attenuated to sound bite size is weaponized to belittle, but seldom enlightens. The synthesis Pope Francis seeks of oppositions lacerating the church is no halfway house compromise, still less a win-lose scenario, but unity through agonic contrast, the flow of Catholic tradition seen as a coincidence of opposites. Reconciliation is entrusted to the mystery of God in history. Only the Holy Spirit can inspire diversity, plurality and multiplicity, yet create unity in difference. Resisting dichotomies that force options for false reductionisms, it searches out the transcendent point of resolution operating in history through the church. Francis' polyphonic Catholic universality integrates differences without annulling them. That draws on Muller's understanding of ecclesial unity as a coincidence of opposites, distinguishing contrariety, Gegensatz, from contradiction, Widerspruch, in an organic unity of positions that outside its context become irreducible and contradictory. Opposites subsist in unity, their tension a sign of the unity of the church. True life exists only in the unity of opposites. Heresy follows absolutizing a single part, breaking the vital bond of polar tension. The transcendent point of synthesis is not a unity erasing contrasts in empty uniformity. For Guardini, France's intellectual mentor, the intellectual and the spiritual current of a period always flows in a particular direction. One tendency predominates and moreover, that which is opposite to the former. The Catholic attitude demands only that the other aspect not be rejected and coherence with the whole preserved. Catholic thought is a synthesis of opposing polarities, overcoming contradictory forms into which the poles, if isolated, might degenerate. It seeks a unity of opposites, Schwanungseinheit, that fluctuates between poles in a never resolved tension between them in a dynamic unity of opposites. Importantly, for Francis, mysticism is not a pole antithetical to action, but the place of synthesis of opposites. The opposites are not annulled. One does not destroy the other. There is neither contradiction nor identity. 
opposition is resolved at a higher level. The tension remains, the limits overcome, not negated. Catholic communion, dynamic and polyform, fears no loss of unity in accommodating different poles and, rec and reconciling them in the Holy Spirit. The other is not enemy, but opposite. Constructing unity requires the synthesis of fruitful tension, not struggle against an enemy. Reconciliation is found through solidarity. As Francis says, life for all its confrontations is the art of encounter. Learning with mutual integrity invites exit from comfort zones where all we hear are echoes of our own limited insight. The church lives out this tension to abolish this in centralism or in dispersion, whether by the normative or the dissident, obstructs the Holy Spirit. Bergoglio's image is the polyhedron, not the sphere which eliminates difference in uniformity, illusorily cancelling every tension except between centre and periphery. Rather than extinguish opposition, he would turn it into diversified life-giving unity. He sees the parts in relation to the whole, concrete living knowledge accomplished in the tendency between poles is an act of contemplation. It engenders solidarity within freedom where imminence is rooted in transcendence and the unity of the people of God finds its actuality not in a political consensus, but in seeking God. It proposes an ecclesiology where people form attitudes rooted in solidarity. That requires empathy towards the best in one's opponents, avoiding blanket rejection. Differences are creative. They create tension. In the resolution of tension lies progress. Authentic dialogue involves the ability to respect the other's point of view, to admit that it may include legitimate convictions and concerns. It invites both center and periphery, both normative and dissident, to look into themselves through the polar other, to find energy for renewal within, rather than as predetermined from an outside ideology. This exemplifies receptive ecumenism. One must mention receptive ecumenism in Durham. That receptivity allows us to see ourselves and our tradition in partial communion with a different tradition and does so through encounter rooted in solidarity. Similarly, it allows us to see what we hold dear in partial communion with divergent elements in our own tradition, just as acknowledged limitations and a desire for greater fullness allow receptive learning with integrity in the former, so also do they facilitate it in the latter. Pope Francis mistrusts self-absolutizing mediations, preferring direct contact with the other. Centered on the cross, this facilitates freedom from the will to power in a service of reconciliation, uniting divisive tensions in a prayerful heart and compassionate communion. A prophetic piece of writing by Lonergan 60 years ago examined ecclesial implications of the demise of a classical culture of fixed definitions and the emergence of modern culture's endless flood of divergent interpretive writing. He wrote, there is bound to be formed a solid right, determined to live in a world that no longer exists. There is bound to be formed a scattered left, captivated by now this, now that new development, exploring now this and now that new possibility. But what will count 
is a perhaps not numerous centre, big enough to be at home in both the old and the new, painstaking enough to work out one by one the transitions to be made, strong enough to refuse half measures and insist on complete solutions, even though it has to wait. That solid right is evident. It's clarion cry to make a version of the church great again. But it's again refers to a world that no longer exists and to a church that never existed. Equally evident is the scattered left with each voice focused on the issue on which it insists the church will either stand or fall offering with the dislocation of a sometimes isolated conscience, the single concrete correction that will, it claims, make all things right and save the church from itself. Perhaps our task as students of Catholic theology is to locate our efforts in that sometimes marginalized space, which both loves and trusts the tradition without seeking to freeze it in a previous articulation, yet wholeheartedly and purposefully embraces the strictly necessary project of transformational renewal, including its elements of critique, deconstruction and transformative praxis that make transitions possible. These transitions will occur slowly, all too slowly, through much painstaking self-correction, never free from tensions. They will demand the journey faith of vulnerable pilgrims, reckoning with endless setbacks. Both wheat and darnel bloom, not only in received structures, but in the strategies that would replace them and in the theological reflections that would clarify them including this present one. They bloom in our best laid plans and even in our hearts and minds. The angels of Matthew 13, it seems, are in no great hurry to separate them out. Thank you very much for your kind attention. <laughs>